This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Thanks for downloading the Let's Talk About Suicide podcast. This podcast is for anyone who has lost a loved one to suicide, and we'll be focusing on the LGBTIQA communities. As the name suggests, this podcast discusses issues around suicide, which can be a tough subject to talk about, but it's really important that we do. We want to provide support to people who are bereaved by suicide and let people talk about it. In all of our discussions, we'll be conscious to use the appropriate language, and your self-care is important. Listening to this podcast may raise issues for you, and if this is the case, we'd encourage you to contact one of the following services in Australia. QLife on 1800 184 527. The Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. Or Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can find all of these contact details on the JOY website at joy.org.au slash let's talk. This podcast is produced in association with Support After Suicide, a program of Jesuit social services that provides support to people who have been bereaved by suicide, and Switchboard Victoria, which provides peer-driven support services for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual people, their families, allies and communities. We would also like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wandering people of the Kulin Nation and we would like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to extend our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are listening. If you are listening to this podcast anywhere in Australia, you are on Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. Welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About Suicide. My name is Hamish Blunk, and I'm your host for this podcast. Also guiding you through each of our episodes are two wonderful experts, Joe Ball, who is the CEO of Switchboard Victoria. They are also an LGBTIQA plus community leader and use the pronouns they, them. And Dr. Louise Flynn, who is a psychologist and also the manager of Support After Suicide. We'll also hear from four people who we talk to about their experience with a loved one who died by suicide. Bo, Lara, Peter and Alice. In this episode we're going to talk about the stigma associated with suicide. Stigma is a mark of shame that people project onto others that is misguided and born out of lack of knowledge, prejudice and discrimination. When talking about suicide, people often feel that there is something shameful about it, or sinful, or even selfish. Both the person who suicided and those they left behind can be affected by this stigma. Even the language some people use, for example committing suicide, implies that there's an element of criminality in the death, that they've done something wrong. And by the way, if like me you didn't know that we shouldn't use that term committed suicide, I'd encourage you to go back and to listen to episode 1 in this series. There is also another layer of stigma that members of the LGBTIQA plus communities experience, 
And one of the consequences of this is that it can be harder for us to connect with and get support from family and professional services. But even just starting a conversation about suicide can be difficult because of the stigma surrounding it, as Louise talks about here. One of the other experiences that is uh, unique to suicide uh, is the stigma of suicide. It's not something, um, suicide isn't something that in our community we're very comfortable speaking about. So there can be um, a lot of difficulty in knowing how to talk to someone after someone has taken their own life. There can be difficulty in talking about the person who's died. There's a tendency sometimes, because their death has caused such pain, to be critical or judgmental about them. And those things tend to be unhelpful. So there is still a stigma about suicide. Societal attitudes play a big part in perpetuating ideas that give power to the stigma. Joe offers an explanation of why this might happen and how it influences the way we talk about suicide. The other thing with stigma and suicide is, you know, certain religions still hold positions that suicide means won't give you entry to the afterlife. And so I think there can be those cultural and faith-based sort of stigma that can come about where people end up saying things like, sort of fabricating stories really and just say oh they lost they died and sort of alluding and not getting there's that and then I think there's also the stigma of if we talk about it it will cause someone else to suicide so there's that which I think you know really is a suicide myth I think to tackle the stigma head-on with suicide is that people often when you don't name it as suicide and you use all these euphemisms to talk about suicide is that people know what you're saying and they know that you are talking about suicide and that and then so that leads people to go like it it recreates the idea that we can't talk about it because you yourself are saying we lost this person they passed away they're no longer with us and you won't actually say the word suicide and I think that can lead to this sort of greater idea that we just can't talk about it and that's the whole point of this podcast really is that we are going to talk about it and we need to talk about it. Yeah I think for many people even the word suicide kind of strikes fear and even today there are um, people I think some families um, who we've had contact with where they feel really unable to acknowledge that the death was suicide So they might tell people um, who weren't close to the person, they might just tell people um, that it was a car crash or a heart attack. So that tells us that people still feel uh, concerned or afraid about how either they're going to be perceived or how about the person, how the person who died is going to be perceived. So this tells us that there is stigma. And unfortunately, that sort of barrier to communication, you know, leaves behind... Um, isolation. People don't feel free then to really speak openly um, about what's happened. Speaking openly about suicide is something that as a society we need to become better at doing. And as Joe said, tackling it directly and naming it is the first step to combating the stigma. But for many LGBTIQA plus people, grieving can be more complex because of an additional layer of both stigma and discrimination in the wider community, problems with biological families, and even from internalised shame that you might have. This is Bo, who, as heartbreaking as this sounds, felt that the loss of his partner, Jeff, was less than someone else's loss, simply because it was a gay relationship. 
I started thinking and getting really down about it, thinking that because, you know, I'm gay and I was with Jeff and it was a gay relationship that Jeff's death wasn't as important as, um, say, a, a mother with children who had lost their husband um, and left their children behind. Every life is just as important as the next, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, bisexual, transgender, or anything like that. Every life is precious. I know that Bo's experience is not an uncommon one. And Joe knows this from experience, hearing lots of stories through Switchboard Victoria, an LGBTIQA plus peer-based counselling service. It's how LGBTIQA plus people have been made to feel about our relationships through historical discrimination, discrimination that we grew up with, whether in our schools, our religious organisations or society at large, that our relationships are not as equal um, at all, and a lot of stigma over our relationships. So his opinion is, is quite a common one, tragically. When you lose someone suicide included or otherwise when you're LGBTIQA plus you go through those emotions of that it's not the same it's not the same as which I guess is discrimination turned onto yourself um, societal discrimination turned onto yourself and I think it's beautiful how he does actually say in that statement we are the same and I think that's really important and I think it's something that we all have to challenge ourselves that our relationships are exactly the same yes we may have only just received marriage equality but our grief and our relationships and our loves are the same and should be treated accordingly uh, whether we've been married or or not and regardless of how our friends and family see it it's very painful for people in the lgbtiqa plus community to feel like at a moment where they're most vulnerable to be concerned about that discrimination and stigma but i think that's still a reality for a lot of us and something we have to battle with and unfortunately have to battle with it at a time when we're our most vulnerable. It is not only internalised stigma that can cause problems. Another experience that is not uncommon is that there can be a disconnect between friends of the person who suicided and the person's biological family and the way these two groups viewed that person they have both lost. The person's identity, how they portrayed themselves and how they identified in the community may not always be honoured when remembering that person, say, at the funeral. Alice very much felt this disconnect at Ingrid's funeral. I was invited to the funeral service, which was lovely um, to be invited. I appreciated that. Um, But it was an open casket service, um, and that was quite confronting confronting I guess I didn't really like that and also I guess um, her body for lack of a better word had been prepared in a way that maybe fit more with the part of herself that she showed to her family than the part that I was familiar with as her friend so you know she had been prepared with like a lot of makeup on with a dress on and it was just like a way like I almost didn't recognize her like it was not how you know, whenever I saw her, she never wore any makeup, um, and and al- almost never wore a dress. So I sort of, I, it was immediately a bit uncomfortable. I was like, it's really out of step with the part of her that I know. Um, 
and I was just looking at her and couldn't even I was like that doesn't already kind of alienating to see her in a deceased state and then to see her in such a different presentation it was quite painful I think it was not helpful for me to see her in that way not having that authentic representation of the person can cause distress to people who don't recognise the way their loved one is portrayed. Here's Joe again. What Alice is speaking to is the experience that LGBTIQA plus people can have when someone dies is that a family can want to rewrite parts of the, the person who has died to suicide's life. They can try and edit it because of their own stigma and discrimination maybe in a way that they're not even acknowledging, but they might want to hark back to another time or, you know, try and portray their their loved one in a different way to how they live their life. And I think that's something that is understandable, but it's extremely painful to the people who knew them in a different way. And I think what Alice is speaking to is an experience that, again, like Bose, is not an uncommon experience that family wanting to hide that part of their relationship that their identity wanting to hide their sexuality and identity after they have died or to downplay it I think that that plays a damaging role for people in our community because it it says that that part of our lives is shame and stigma so how does that affect the ability of someone to grieve it means that people feel like they're battling um, multiple representations of somebody and that they are maybe losing the person again. Um, And I think that's a really painful, it's just profoundly painful because you feel like you've lost them to suicide and then they've been rewritten. So it's a double loss. And I think that is something as a community, we, lots of people in the LGBTIQA plus community, and this happened during the AIDS epidemic, is that multiple ceremonies were held. So maybe a biological family ceremony was held where the person's identity and sexuality was denied and maybe it was held in a religious organisation or a place that was unaccepting and then the community would come together and have a a separate ceremony. And that's quite a common experience and is a very important and useful experience and I think people should feel very empowered to have whatever ceremonies they need to have to remember the person they lost the way that, you know, they remember them. You might be listening to this podcast sometime after the funeral of your loved one, and maybe you felt that their funeral didn't adequately represent the way they lived their life. As Joe said, there's no reason why you can't have another ceremony where you can remember them in the way that fits for you. It might not only be helpful for you, but also your community, because they will undoubtedly be struggling with the same issue. It is important that you are looking after your own needs and are aware of how other people are coping in your community after the suicide death of someone close. Because another thing that people might experience when they're dealing with the suicide death is that they might feel suicidal themselves. And it's true, they are at greater risk. This thought can be really traumatic given what you're going through. So how can you make sure that you're safe and the people around you are also safe? Alice was acutely aware of this within her community. I think the other thing I felt was still a lot of fear um, and it was primarily fear that someone else would kill themselves. I was very, I was very, very afraid that someone else would suicide and also knowing that if someone suicides that puts the people around them at higher risk and when everyone around Ingrid was also, like many of them were part of the 
queer community. Just like the cocktail of those risk factors in that in that period, and I was in a very still in a very visceral switched on state. It was just like this mortal fear that someone would die, and that I I needed to know I needed to notice and help. In terms of combating that risk, I felt like I had very low capacity, but I there were a few people who I really felt were more impacted than me. In the sense that you don't want to make like a big value judgment, but people who perhaps had an even more close or intimate relationship with Ingrid, or and or were more traumatized by what had happened, and so I prioritized them. And so with those people, I tried to really make an effort to be like physically present with them, especially early on, to stay in contact and to make opportunities, particularly in the evenings, to touch base and talk about things like accessing supports as well, like. I've put the, you know, the number for, um, you know, the suicide callback service on my wall and, you know, do you have the number? Have you tried calling them? What's it like? You know, having that communication about support and kind of trying to normalize that as something that we were all doing and that was really expected as part of the process. Um, that was something that I really tried to cultivate as well. Yeah, Alice has raised some really um, important points there. This is Louise again from Support After Suicide. I think one thing um, to say initially is that it's the impact of trauma too that makes people hyper alert. And after a traumatic experience, the world can feel unsafe and unpredictable. And so there can be a dread or a deep real fear that something else bad is going to happen. And that, that sort of you know, being very shaken um, by the experience uh, will also bring about a fear of other bad things happening and also perhaps another suicide. We didn't see this one coming. How do we know it's not going to happen again? So that, that fear um, and those sorts of thoughts actually do come with a traumatic experience. So that's certainly part of it. As Alice says, though, there is some uh, research evidence to suggest that people who've been exposed to suicide do have an increased risk. I think in many of the people that I've met, sometimes that, uh, particularly initially, um, there can be a sense of, there's sort of a difference, I think, between feeling like I want to die and being suicidal. So there's a sense of, like, this is too painful. Um, I don't want to live life without this person in my life. So there can be, I think, the um, the pain um, that someone's going through and feeling like they uh, won't ever be able to manage this pain and that this pain is always going to last, that can lead people to feeling like dying and not being here um, is a better option. I think there's also a sense of life feeling, as I said, kind of bleak without the person in it. So I want to be where they are. So I think though they could, that can lead to thoughts of wanting to not be here and then there's kind of, um, I guess, a continuum where some people do certainly um, experience um, profoundly suicidal thoughts. And what Alice has done there is really focus on connection and care and looking out for each other. And I think the way she's spoken about it is like, this is a normal thing that we would do. Our group of friends, our community, we look out for each other. So it's not a sign that there's something wrong with someone or that they're particularly weak or anything it's just like this terrible experience has happened to all of us 
and um, we're in this together. So you ha- kind of get a sense of a community being in this together. That's a great way to be. It's protective, but it's also very human and connecting and loving of other human beings. But somebody listening to this who may not have that feeling of connection with community or the people around them, what would you say to them to identify this and then reach out for some kind of help? I think also, I mean, grief does and certainly can feel very isolating. So getting a sense of community can be really helpful. And if someone doesn't have that around them, because certainly sometimes... um, Grief after suicide can lead to estrangement from friends and family, then it is good to be able to reach out. It's one of the reasons why support groups are an excellent experience after losing someone to suicide. It's kind of recreating that sense of community and belonging and acceptance and understanding after um, this very difficult experience has happened. As Louise said, Support groups can be really helpful for you to get support and build a community around that. But what about when other people are seeking support from you, and you may not have the capacity to give them that support? Joe suggests one idea. I like how Alice talks about having the suicide line number ready, because I think what she's saying there is that she can't be there for absolutely everyone, and that's totally the case, is that there's going to be people that... that their needs exceed what we can give them when we ourselves are grieving. And I think that's what she's saying is like, you know, get those numbers out to people and keep reaching out. And that's something we try and it's something we do all the time at Switchboard is to constantly be promoting the idea of the phone numbers in through social media. And I think that's things that people can do is to take those posts up and share them because you actually never know who is being affected by grief and loss and suicidality. And so I think it's a probably a kind of a permanent kind of vigilance that is important that we have to take on as a community. Not to the point that, like Alice is talking about a specific time where you feel like, I've lost somebody, I'm in trauma, I'm just like all the time thinking about people. Because I don't think that's, that's not something you can live with and sustain. That feeling of like, People are going to die and people are going to die all around me. But I think having a, a level of vigilance where or, – or not vigilance but concern. Concern for people and concern for community all the time and you can do that with just sharing the number. The other thing about it is – and that's what I was talking about with the sharing the social media posts – is that a recognition that you might feel like straight after somebody is suicided – the need to do that but over time you might lose that might wane but recognizing that when people have been bereaved by suicide that can go on for years and so that's why we're trying to switchboard is to constantly keep it on the agenda as an organization to have the number out there all the time and have messages about suicide and bereavement out and grief and loss regularly yeah that's a good uh, a really important point, Joe, because even like after the initial um, difficult period, some people might, you know, find their feet, start functioning again. And but down the track, there can be particular dates or times of the year uh, when it'll get more difficult again. When it's their birthday or your birthday, or when it's the anniversary, um, they can really um, 
people can really get a very fresh wave of grief that can be quite intense and unexpected. So that need for um, support, um, checking in with each other, is ongoing. It's not just in that initial period. The stigma around suicide can complicate your grief. It can make it harder for you to talk about it or find someone who is empathetic to listen to you. But I would encourage you to try and find somebody to talk to. Maybe a support group, a professional counsellor, or try calling a helpline like QLife in Australia. Connecting with or building a community will not only help you and others around you with grieving, but also help keep other people safe. In the next episode of Let's Talk About Suicide, we are going to talk about triggers, noises, phrases, places, almost anything that can draw you back into your trauma and grief. So please join us for that episode. But before you go, it's that part of the episode where I share with you some things that the people we interviewed with lived experience did to help them with their grief, some things they did for their self-care. They are some practical and helpful things that you might consider doing right now, or maybe just store in the back of your mind for later to help you through your bereavement. This one's from Lara. I got to a bit of a, um, a fork in the road where I could see it was either alcoholism or activity. So I chose activity. Um, not to say that alcohol didn't p- play a part that initially that was sort of comforting, I suppose, to be able to have a few glasses of wine and eat huge bowls of pasta. But, you know, for me, I could only do that for so long. So getting active was really helpful. And I know that for a lot of people that's not possible for lots of different reasons and it might not or it might not feel possible. But in my case, it was, yeah, it was hugely important. When I was about 27, I had a a bad breakup and I started running, jogging. Uh, And so it is something that I've learned to fall back on and in my life. I love being in the water. I love walking, all those things. So um, it is something I already had. But because after Ingrid died, I didn't do any of that for maybe four or five, four to six weeks. I hardly left the house besides to go to therapy or memorials and funeral and her funeral. So I just basically went to the gym like every day or most days. And I think if I hadn't been getting up and going to the gym every day, I would have just been in bed like a lot. It was winter, like because Ingrid died in autumn, it was then winter quite soon and it was a long, dark winter. So getting up, going to the gym, going for a swim, getting in the sauna, getting really hot, jumping in the sea, doing that really regularly just gave me something to be doing. Even though I felt awful, I was doing something that made me feel maybe a little bit better or certainly didn't make me feel worse. That was my thing. And, and the getting really hot and then getting cold... Um, is used as a depression treatment, I found out afterwards. That was really good. And I remember the first time getting into the sea in the night time, the first time I did it, it probably was July or August, June, July or August, and just thinking or just saying to my, a mantra to myself, like, I will survive this, I will survive this. And as the months went on, I kept doing that. And it changed to, I am surviving this. I am surviving this. You can download the other episodes in this series from joy.org.au slash let's talk. 
or look for them in your podcast feed. And you can also download the full-length interviews with the people who have shared their own stories. Thanks to our amazing expert panel, Joe Ball from Switchboard Victoria and Louise Flynn from Support After Suicide. And also to the people we interviewed with lived experience, Alice, Bo, Lara and Peter. Let's Talk About Suicide is presented and produced by me, Hamish Blunk. Editorial assistance by Joy Program Director, Rachel Tyler-Jones. And technical help from Jack Trainor, Joy Production Manager. If you'd like to contact the show, you can email us at letstalk at joy.org.au. But if you need to talk to somebody right now or are in crisis, please contact one of the following services in Australia. You can call QLife on 1800 184 Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can find all of these contact details at joy.org.au slash letstalk. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.